Welcome back to another installment of the podcast for cultural reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute. This is Worldview Wednesday. Our host for today's episode is Ryan Eras. I have counsel and sound wisdom. I have insight. I have strength. By me, kings reign and rulers decree what is just. By me, princes rule and nobles, all who govern justly. Proverbs 8, 14 to 16. Welcome back once again. Season 6, Episode 2 of the Podcast for Cultural Reformation, brought to you by the Ezra Institute, resident also on the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. It's easy to keep track when it's two, uh, but uh, I can't promise we're going to do that every episode going forward. I'm Ryan Aris, and I am joined by Dr. Joe Boot. I'm here in the Knox Cellar, and it is, uh, it's good to be together. Joe, welcome, uh, welcome back. How you been? Doing well, uh, Ryan. How are you? I'm doing. I'm doing well, also. Yeah, thank you. I mean, as a um, as a uh, as a patriot and uh, a monarchist here, um, as as much as I respect and admire the American system, obviously it's a sad time uh, for the United Kingdom and the Commonwealth. But uh, here we are. We are where we are, and. Uh, It'll, it'll. I think the um, the funeral of Queen Elizabeth II, the late Queen, is uh, on Monday next week. So, it's an interesting time for Canada, for the United Kingdom, Australia, New Zealand, and um, the Commonwealth of Nations. Mm-hmm. And we're going to be talking about that today uh, in more depth. This is for you and I, uh, and for many people older than us. This was uh, this was the only Queen, only monarch that uh, that we've known. A seventy-year reign, I believe, is the uh, the longest reigning European monarch, if if I'm not mistaken. That's right. Yeah. And we're going to uh, we're going to talk about the legacy of Elizabeth II, uh, as well as what uh, what Scripture says about the the role of the monarch, a, a human uh, monarch under God, and uh, whether and how she uh, she filled that role. So we're uh, we're looking forward to uh, to getting into that. I think I think it's an important uh, conversation. A, th- a lot of people are, I'm sure I'm sure you've noticed this as well in the in the UK. But a lot of people are a little bit uh, feeling a little bit adrift. This uh, this symbol of stability. This little old woman. For as long as I've been alive, that's what that's what she has been. The little old woman uh, has always been there been a uh, a sort of touch point constancy even if you're not if you don't uh have the uh the mindset the words to articulate it there's there's something something reliable and dependable and comforting about the presence of uh, of the queen so it's uh, it's worthwhile to to get into what uh, what was that what was that that we we're all feeling or noticing or realizing that now that uh, now that she's gone and now that we're we're looking at uh, the uh, the impending coronation of Charles the 3rd 
Before we get into that, just a couple of housekeeping items. Mark your calendars for the Christianity and Culture Colloquium. That's coming up here in uh, in Port Colborne, Ontario, October 18th to 21st. We've mentioned this before. This is our general audience, not conference, but uh, overnight event, multi-day event with, uh, with accommodations and catering and sustained teaching. And this, these kinds of events are really where we have noticed uh, when you get a, a chance to really sustain that interaction over a few days, you know, to have meals and coffee together and to, to talk things through this is where the penny really drops for a lot of people. Doesn't matter what your background is, uh, if you get get to work this out in a uh, you know a community, an environment full of like-minded people who are committed to considering these same issues, this is a, this is a very valuable time, and uh, I would encourage everyone to uh, to go on uh, go on EzraInstitute.com and register for uh, the Christianity and Culture Colloquium. It's October 18th to 21st. We do also run the, uh, the one-day Mission of God conference. This year, it's going to be in, in Windsor, Ontario. That's at, uh, at Harvest Bible Chapel. Uh, Dr. Aaron Rock, who is a fellow of the Institute, he'll be hosting us at, uh, at his church there in Windsor. That's December 10th, Mission of God conference, and you can get tickets for that as well at EzraInstitute.com. Looking a little further ahead through the Christmas season and down into next spring, Joe, you and several others are going to be in Texas. And uh, we're going to be not hosting, but participating in the uh, a, a conference there, a multi-day conference by Right Response Ministries. Uh, Pastor Joel Webin is uh, organizing and hosting that event I don't remember where exactly in Texas it is, but it's not that big of a place, so you'll find it. <laughs> it's just outside of Waco, I think. Okay, perfect. Just outside of Waco, Texas. That's uh, that's the Right Response Ministries Conference. Uh, the dates are May 5th through 7th, uh, 2023. And I know that uh, one of our fellows, uh, James White, of course, will be... Uh, We'll be we'll be uh, uh, speaking um, also at, uh, at that conference, so we're looking forward to that right. very much. Mm-hmm. So you, James White, Joel himself, and a few others—that's that's going to be a barn burner. Are uh, looking forward to it. <laughs> so Joe, I uh, I read off, I, I kicked off reading from uh, from Proverbs eight there, and the uh, the. I, that, uh, that is speaking there, uh, as so often is the case in Proverbs, uh, is wisdom personified. It is, uh, it is by wisdom that kings reign and rulers decree what is just. And if, you, uh, if you've been tracking with, uh, with many of the, the tributes and editorials that have been pouring in about uh, Queen Elizabeth over the past week, uh, that, has been, that has been a constant theme uh, her wisdom, her, uh, her understated, uh, I guess statesmanship is a word, but be, being a, being having the the unique ability to say just the right thing in just the right way at uh, at the moment that it's called for. Uh, this was a uh, a common theme that uh, 
that other uh, other world leaders are as well as uh, you know business uh, professionals anyone who who met her and had an opportunity to speak with her this this is something that uh, that they're talking about uh, so her and the the other thing that uh, that you'll see repeated throughout uh, you know across several platforms is these themes of of duty and of service and i think uh, like she wasn't even queen yet i think her it was just after her father had become or not you know, shortly after her father had become king after uh, edward the 8th had uh, had abdicated and and we'll rehearse some of this history maybe for our american listeners but uh she uh, she got on the radio. She was like 21 years old, and she pledged that uh, you know her life would be a life of you know of duty and service uh, to her subjects, the subjects of the uh, what was by then the Commonwealth in a, in a uh, a post-war era. Um, she uh, so the, these these words, these themes of of duty and of service of uh, of constancy and stability and wisdom have marked out uh, Elizabeth's reign and uh, everyone seems to be acknowledging that but joe you we were talking just before the show there's something that many of these many of these uh, well-meaning tributes miss and that's uh, that's a foundational aspect that uh, that provides the basis for uh, an understanding of wisdom and a, the possibility of giving uh, the correct uh, duty and service. Yeah, well, that's. Uh, I think yeah, you've hit on something critically important there. The uh, it's interesting, isn't it, that um, that Christ in Scripture is described as the wisdom of God, and uh, Christ is both the wisdom of God and the power of God, and um, wisdom is personified, uh, as you said there in in Proverbs, and. Um, you we really do see Christ in the proverbs whether you're thinking about Christ as creator in proverbs 8 um or as the uh as the one who is giving um uh, wisdom to to kings and 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 judges uh this whole idea of wisdom when you look at the, the whole of the biblical picture is grounded and rooted in Christ in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge and it has been interesting uh, listening to that reflection about Queen Elizabeth, because of course the writer of Proverbs, King Solomon, uh, is regarded. He's treated in the Bible as as the wisest of the Israelite kings, and of course one of the wisest men who's ever lived, according to the Lord Jesus. Uh, the, the the great wisdom of Solomon. It was so legendary that actually heads of state and um, governors and leaders from around the world, including the Queen of Sheba. Um, come to Solomon to hear the uh, to hear his wisdom which of course is god given um and uh is found ultimately um in in the lord jesus christ so the fact that uh, a lot of the commentary about elizabeth ii it concerns not just duty and service and faithfulness and constancy but also this this notion of wisdom from her experience I found very interesting, but you picked up on something very important, which is people have this almost um, uh, astonished kind of admiration for Elizabeth's sense of duty 
her the constancy, the, the sense of constancy that she provided for so many people. You mentioned that, you know, for, for your life, basically you've known the queen as this sort of a small, smaller elderly lady. And uh, for, unless you're, you know, um, pretty much into your uh, late 70s, uh, you know, your, your only real memory um, of the queen um, the, the, your only your only memory, and certainly within the, the Commonwealth um, and on the world stage, and especially if you're Canadian or British, um, is going to be of the only monarch ever is Queen Elizabeth. So you have this sense at the same time also of this end of an era, which adds to this sense of the pathos of the moment uh, of her passing. But what I've noticed is that the vast majority of commentators and the vast majority of these uh, of those who are reflecting on the life of the queen fail to root and ground the source of that they sent that you know they're so astonished by these virtues but for the queen herself these were grounded in her commitment to christ in her and in her coronation oath you know there was actually only ever one book hundreds and hundreds of books have been written about the queen there was only one book that she ever uh, wrote a foreword to, um, participated in making a comment for the book to to uh, endorse the book, as it were, and it was actually put together by Christians in the UK, and uh, it's called the Servant Queen, and in it she the, the whole book is about the 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 life of the Christian faith and the life of her of her commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. That actually um, was the source of her her strength and her sense of duty and service and constancy. And I believe, of course, as well as believers, we recognize that the wisdom that God gives when you make uh, a faithful oath to the Lord and you intend to keep it, and when you com- commit yourself to, to Christ and you ask God for wisdom, he's going to give it to you. And, of course, all those years, those decades of experience around the world, uh, and all that she, uh, you know, the, the transition in a sense of a world, you mentioned, you know, the, the, the post-World War II era, uh, when really what was happening, there was a shift from uh, Britain's uh, previously vast global power to steadily over the middle of, through the middle of the 20th century, uh, much uh, diminished global power and what was the British Empire steadily uh, being given up and transfers of power, peaceful, it should be noted, um, unprecedented actually in the history of empires, in the history of um, of imperialism, of these um, peaceful uh, transfers of power. Now, of course, there was there was conflict in India between the the the, the Hindus and the Muslims, north and south, and um, how the country was because, of course, as the as the empire. Um, surrendered its character and gave independence to these various nations um those nations had to work out how they were going to handle that um so it wasn't entirely without uh, disruption of course um but you had this transition that she was overseeing from empire to a commonwealth a family of nations bound together by a sense of friendship and tradition and uh, values and so all of that travel and all of that experience um, uh, under God and, and in terms of um, a commitment to Christ, uh, wisdom was one of the, the key virtues. 
and this sense of constancy and this constant presence and a sense of something that's largely unchanging in the midst of a constantly changing cultural context in the West gave a lot of people a great sense of security. And with the, the passing of the Queen, um, there is there is a sense of a disquiet. There's a sense of uncertainty. There's a great sense of loss for many, many people. Um, there is um, a lot of grief, and in some respects, if you if you liken it to a family, it's for many people. It's like losing uh, a grandmother, a faithful, trusted, uh, constant presence. You know, when you're growing up, if you've had a, that kind of a relationship with your grandparents, you know, the grandma who's always around, always there, caring, constant. This sort of sense of um of a of something you can go to that isn't changing, um, and people have people have now lost that. But what gave uh, Elizabeth, and we might call it the sort of second Elizabethan age, really, um, what gave Elizabeth that sense of uh, duty, faithfulness, service, constancy, was her commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it was rooted in, and the media, of course, are very reticent to talk about that. Um, they don't want to acknowledge that. Uh, they very, very rarely want to talk about. It. They might, in passing, say, you know, she was she was a religious, very devoutly religious person, but they never attribute the virtues that she's praised for that, that she's manifest these seventy years to Christ and her her Christian commitment. I think that's a very, very sad oversight. Something we talk about a lot as an institute: a failure to get to the religious root. And uh, I think that that is something that we uh, we need to note as Christians at this point. No, I think uh, I think that's valuable, Joe. Some, something that's been sort of been uh, several people have commented or speculated or wondered out loud uh, over here in uh, in my so- circles, at least. I wonder if you can comment on this speculation that the monarchy itself is. A, a dying institution, and whether it ought to uh, persist going forward at all, mm-hmm. and I guess what that would look like, uh, so the factors around uh, that uh, that discussion. Mm-hmm. Well, of course, this has been said for <laughs> for a long time. That's uh, right, and, yeah. and uh, people have talked about uh, th- that possibility for a long time and certain sort of revolutionary types and radicals have talked about that for a long time, even in the United Kingdom. Um, but every time uh, that sort of conversation makes any headway, there is the, you suddenly get this manifestation of um, a commitment, gratitude to the royal family and to royalty and to constitutional monarchy. Um, you, you take, for example, the uh, the Golden Jubilee in 2002. That's only 20 years ago, and the, and the huge impact that that had. And then the the Diamond Jubilee in 2012. And I remember commentators being just shocked by the uh, the celebration, the the um, the outpouring of appreciation um, for the monarchy. And in fact, you could argue even now. Um, you know, then you had the Platinum Jubilee, and of course, the Queen has died in her Platinum Jubilee year. And those celebrations again, ten years later. So this is now, you know, twenty years on from the Golden Jubilee. You could argue, actually, looking at um, the United Kingdom, looking at Australia, even um, that uh, it's the the enthusiasm and the appreciation for uh, monarchy, the royal family uh, in Britain, 
which has been much stronger and much more prominent than in any other European nation. I mean, there are, of course, there is a, a monarchy in the Netherlands um, and um, Belgium and some other European countries, um, but it's much, uh, m- most people would not know who they were uh, internationally, whereas Queen Elizabeth II has been perhaps the most recognizable face uh, in the world um, for many, many years. Um and every time people think, oh, monarchy's dead, constitutional monarchy's dead, um, it seems to revive. And and with the passing of, of Queen Elizabeth II, the, even the sort of steam uh, that was sort of um, underlying certain Scottish nationalists uh, in the north, I mean, the fact that the Queen died in perhaps her favourite place in Britain at Balmoral in Scotland, at her, uh, uh, her estate there, um, has meant a lot to the the Scottish people, her appreciation, her love of Scotland. And actually, it's a major blow to the radical Scottish independence movement, uh, the death of the Queen in, in Balmoral. Um, and um, even the um, sort of rather lemon-sucking Nicola Sturgeon, who is the um, uh, the leader up there, in at least of the devolved parliament in Scotland, um, uh, was having to, you know, grit her teeth and acknowledge um, the Scotland's love and appreciation for the Queen. So every time this sort of, um, you know, is the monarchy still relevant? Is it going to survive? Uh, it it seems to sort of revive, and I think part of that is because it provides this sense of contact with the past, um, and especially in Britain and in Canada, perhaps to a lesser degree, in Australia to a lesser degree, but but not necessarily. It provides this sense of identity uh, and a sense of connection to the past. And, 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 and with the passing of Queen Elizabeth, we are, in a certain sense, we're losing that last um, touch point, at least in a particular person, with the old world. I mean, um, Queen Elizabeth had uh, inducted 15, 15 British prime ministers uh, that shows you the, and that will take me to a, a, a different point in just a second about the value of monarchy. But she she had fifteen prime ministers, and her first one was Winston Churchill. So her her life spans, you know, Winston Churchill to Liz Truss. Um, and, that's something uh, to think about, eh? That puts <laughs> that's, it in perspective. That's quite the innings, as we say in cricket. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, the. Um, uh, the, the sense then of, of this contact with the old world and, of course, for the Christians, the Christian with Christendom, which, however attenuated, survives as Western civilization, there's a sense that her passing means there's a personage now that we've lost who, who bridged that gap for us. Nonetheless, um, with the, uh, the um, swearing-in um, of... Uh, King Charles and the proclamation, I should say, of of uh, King Charles the Third. Long live the King. Um, we royalty gives you that sense of abiding continuity, and um, uh, King Charles has already um, uh, sworn to uphold the constitutional settlement for the Church in Scotland. That's a really important step, and all the noises are that um, we're going to see next year a a traditional, um, normal coronation. Um, and um, perhaps we can talk a bit more in a moment about uh, the, um, the significance of the coronation itself and, and, it, and, and its history. But 
just on the sort of Republican angle and, you know, the so-called relevance of monarchy or, or, or irrelevance, one of the things that monarchy enables you to do, and of course, there are strengths and weaknesses to any system. And um, I'm a great admirer of the American system. And no system in and of itself is perfect. Uh, and no system will guarantee the continuity of the of the Christian character of a culture. Um, but one of the things that that monarchy allows for in a constitutional monarchy is you can be patriotic, you can be for your country, you can be for your nation, and you can be proud to be Canadian or proud to be British, proud to be Australian, from New Zealand, whatever, and yet oppose your civil government uh, in terms of its policies and its and its politics. And you can do that vociferously, be against a given uh, government, a given um, government regime, and yet not be unpatriotic, you know, because monarchy gives you the ability to rise above the political fray to more foundational, more fundamental things. And I think, of course, that is one of the things that as the United States uh, is sort of facing this, um, all Western nations are right now, um, you see it very, very visibly in the United States, the ideological division that's there between the old America, um, uh, essentially a, a Christianized America, Christian commitment America, and the new radical progressive ideology. Um, it's very difficult for people uh, in that context to uh, not feel that they're being disloyal or unpatriotic when they oppose their government. Um, and so very often you find these radical groups in America, um, you know, are very anti-American. They're hostile to their own nation. They're hostile to their own flag. They're hostile to their own people. They're hostile to their own history. Um, they're hostile to the founders or hostile to the Constitution. Um, whereas in the constitutional, uh, uh, I mean, and that's, of course, why in some respects you look back at something like January 6th, and that was spun as, got spun by media and politicians alike as a kind of insurrection, um, which I think was complete nonsense. But the, but, but the way they've been able to spin that is that, well, if you oppose uh, your government, then you are an insurrectionist. Well, uh, somehow in the, in the constitutional monarchy, situation. You can be opposed to a given political um, party, a political, uh, one particular government, without being opposed to your nation, your country, uh, its history, and so on. So there, there is a certain, um, I think that's one of the reasons why, to your question, that that that, um, that conversation about abolishing monarchy, especially in the United Kingdom, has never really gained any traction or steam. Um, it's too much part of our identity, and there's a set there, and there is a point of unity there. I mean, the cues to 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 uh, see the uh, body of uh, the Queen in uh, in London right now are five six miles long, uh, with people queuing for hours and hours just to file past the coffin. Um, so it provides a, a a sort of point of unity that rises above some of the partisan political arguments and fray that, of course, are a necessary part of um, a democratic uh, constitutional uh, monarchy. Um, so that's why I think that um, I, I, I don't see a, a swift end to, to monarchy, especially in Britain, 
and in uh, and actually in, in most of the Commonwealth um, countries. Right. I like uh, I like what you said there. I like what you done there. Um, <laughs> I want to I want to test to test that theory with what might be an obvious uh, sort of outlier, and that mm-hmm. is uh, you know your uh, your friend and mine, Oliver Cromwell. Yes. And uh, we Christians and Protestants have have not had great success with kings named Charles, uh, historically. (laughs) Um, what, uh, if in, if, if the monarchy, uh, allows, uh, such a, uh, such a sort of patriotism uh, to balance with, uh, civil dissent, Mm -hmm. how, how do we take, um, Cromwell's interregnum and the civil war? Yeah. Well, um, uh, somebody as, um, as, as pro-monarchy as Winston Churchill um, wanted to name one of Britain's ships during World War II, um, the Cromwell. Um, and so I think Cromwell and the Cromwellian era is often very misunderstood. Um, Cromwell were, did not aim and Parliament did not aim at the abolition of the monarchy. That was never part of the agenda. Uh, the difficulty they were facing with Charles I is that, um, and in a sense, you could say that the Puritan or the English Revolution um, was decisive in breaking um, certain absolutist claims of some monarchs. Um, And Charles I was one of them uh, who sort of thought he had a kind of divine right to, to live above the law, that the king was law. So the question of, you know, is it, um, is it Lex Rex uh, uh, or is it Rex Lex? Um, and um, of course, the English Revolution's answer is that it's 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 uh, that the king must be under the law. Um, the king is not the law, and he is not above the law. So fundamentally, what uh, Parliament and and Cromwell were were seeking there was um, an end to um, the people being forced to fight foreign wars, uh, the king's wars, driven by his own agenda, um, and being taxed to do so um, without the approval of parliament. Parliament hadn't been called, I think, if memory serves. You've kind of put me on the spot a bit. They haven't swatted up. But I think about 11 years, um, parliament had not been called. And so they saw this as a violation of the rights of um, a free-born Englishman, going right back to Magna Carta. So it was, it was actually, uh, there was not an attempt to, the goal was not the end of monarchy or to overthrow the monarchy. The goal was to make sure that the, the king stayed within the constitutional bounds of the role of kingship and that parliament uh, enjoyed the role of parliament. Um, and um, the, in a sense, you had really a confrontation there between a Christian view of monarchy and an ancient uh, Greek an, uh, or, and in fact, perhaps even beyond the Greeks, a very ancient view of monarchy, um, of sort of absolute power, absolute authority, um, which was not the Christian view, because in the Christian view, absolute authority and kingship belongs only to the Lord Jesus Christ. And you see reflected in Elizabeth's uh, life a recognition of that, that she was a servant. She occupied an office. Um, we can perhaps conclude with some discussion about that. Um what of course happened is that um, Charles I would not be prevailed upon. He he would he refused to um, be brought into line. 
He resented any sort of accountability to Parliament. Um, he refused to uh, acknowledge any sort of limitation on his authority and role. Um, and uh, it led, of course, to a war between Parliament and um, the Crown, between the, the Royalists and the, and the Roundheads, uh, the, the Cavaliers and the Roundheads. And uh, uh, Cromwell himself, of course, um, was, uh, was called the Lord Protector, Right. He did not see himself as king. He was offered the crown several times. He refused it. Um, and uh, his goal was not the destruction of uh, monarchy um, in Britain. That was, that was never the driving force. So, of course, in the end, um, uh, the, uh, the, the efforts that Cromwell and then, of course, Cromwell's son um, uh, petered out after the death of Oliver Cromwell, uh, some of the 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 lords, the aristocracy, the ruling barons, and so forth, um, were not committed to the idea of a Christian Commonwealth, um, and uh, they um, they wanted to go back to uh, a vision of reality where the king was handing out um, uh, gifts to his favoured uh, aristocrats, and so of course Charles II, um, in the providence of God. Um, returns to returns to England. But the legacy of the Puritan Revolution, the English Revolution, couldn't be stamped out because you have the glorious revolution of 1688 um, and um, religious liberty and um, a recognition, again, of Parliament and the limitations to be placed on, on, on the king. So uh, we, um, the, the Cromwellian era is easily, uh, is easily misunderstood. Charles I, of course, um, was not a good king. He was um, a profligate. Charles II um, was not a particularly good king either. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it wasn't the best period uh, for, uh, you know, a better time came with William of Orange. Um, and uh, the kind of, I would say, the uh, the the bringing to conclusion what the English Revolution was actually about when William of Orange was invited to take the throne and of course you have the connection there between the the royalty in the Netherlands and in and in Britain so uh, yes uh, the, um, the 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 Cromwell um, made a very important contribution to placing a, a limitation on um, uh, kingship and um, the English revolutionaries, in the end, felt the regicide uh, was necessary um, because the king is not above the law, uh, is not above God's law, and is not above the Lord Jesus Christ. And and that was something that um, you know Elizabeth understood. You know, she, as you said, she reigned longest reigning monarch in European history, uh, second only actually to uh, uh, the. I shouldn't say second only to Queen Victoria. She actually broke the the record of Queen Victoria, another very blessed era um, in British history, uh, the Victorian age, um, in many respects, a, a fallible but, but profoundly Christianized age. Um, and, you know, Elizabeth had a much harder assignment in one respect, a much more difficult assignment of a radically secularizing culture all around her. And... Um, um, much more diminished powers uh, and authority than than a Queen Victoria enjoyed, uh, and yet trying to fulfil that that role uh, faithfully. And don't forget, um, you know, people think, well, it's just a paper monarchy. There, you know, there was no real power there, but there was. There was there was soft power, uh, 
um, that was projected globally because of her relationship with heads of state around the world. And also the prime minister would have a weekly audience with the queen. That is part of the the tradition is that the British prime minister meets weekly with the the queen. Of course, those conversations are private, um, but she would have had opportunity to express her views on any number of things. Um, If we were being um, critical, uh, 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 sort of as constructively critical as we could uh, from a Christian standpoint about Queen Elizabeth's reign, uh, bills that pass into law need royal assent. And of course, the last 20 years has, has given us a series of, of bills that are, that are rolling back dramatically our uh, Christian uh, law order, especially in the realm of marriage and, uh, and so forth, and life and, um, uh, and so on. And um, for, the, uh, for the Queen, there would have been a choice there between basically precipitating a constitutional crisis uh, by refusing to sign a bill into law and perhaps, as she would have imagined, perhaps signing the death warrant of uh, the monarchy um, in, in, a, in the sense that uh, it, it, its power would be set aside and great, greatly, its, its soft power set aside, greatly reduced, and, and worst case scenario, even a sort of almost revolutionary posture. Um, if she said, well, actually, I'm not going to sign this bill that's come from Parliament. Um we don't actually know what if what if Queen Elizabeth had refused to sign uh, the, the the bill that um, enshrined in law homosexual marriage, for example. What if she had refused to sign that? What might have happened? What what might have actually been the implication for the British public? How, how would the British public have responded? I don't think it's actually that predictable. Um, that uh, yes, it would have been there would have been a constitutional crisis, of course. But where would the British people have been on it? I think one of the reasons she couldn't uh, fundamentally, uh, practically uh, refuse to sign those bills is that in the end she did not really enjoy uh, the backing of the bishops and of the church uh, in the House of Lords. That you know the Church of England hierarchy has has drifted in a very liberal, progressive direction. And without the support of the church, without the clear categorical support of the church, without the church speaking out strongly on these issues, um, of course, in not in Canada, where we historically had a kind of soft establishment um, any, as well, but, um, but no hereditary bishops in, in, in either of the chambers. You have, um, you have bishops in the um, 26 bishops, I think it is off the top of my head, in, in the House of Lords. And with clear support, if she'd had clear support from the Archbishop of Canterbury, clear support from the bishops in the House, who themselves could have actually stopped that bill, um, the Queen would have been in a good position. But without that support, um, her position was almost made, you know, impossible. So there, there was genuine power to her role. It was soft power, uh, and there were these conversations with the prime ministers, and. Um, uh, where um, she would have put uh, some of her views forward. But it was a very, very different type of reign to the one enjoyed by Queen Victoria, um, who would have projected much more power uh, politically um, than um, than Elizabeth's reign. And if, I say, mean, if ba- based on the, the little that I know of both of those queens, uh, Victoria, her sheer force of personality was was stronger than Elizabeth's as well. Yes. 
yeah and it was an age in which it was the it was the high watermark of the british empire and so you know a sense of of, of massive global power was projected and much of that was centered um in monarchy um and uh, her 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 word would have carried t- tremendous weight. Of course, Elizabeth herself was not expecting to be queen. Um, you mentioned it at the beginning. Uh, she was born um, into the, the 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 home of I think he was the Duke of York. Yes. Yep. The younger um, brother. Yeah, and uh, she would have been expecting a, a yes, a no doubt, of course, a privileged life and a sheltered life. Um, one in which she could have lived in the country and, uh, and and explored her passion for horses and horse racing and and those sorts of things, but with the abdication uh, you mentioned already of Edward VIII, um, for basically for a for a a, a relationship with a, um, a an American um, socialite uh, Simpson. So the shock that the abdication was to the British people um, was also a shock to the royal family. And um, that meant that um, George VI, her father, the Duke of York, uh, became king, um, putting her then in line to the throne. And But what was even worse for her, she was very close to her father and obviously saw his example. He was, he was king during World War II, perhaps the most trying time in British history. And um, uh, he uh, he refused to leave London. The royal family refused to to, to leave. They they stayed to be with the people. They actually um, famously w- walked out in, into in the, in the midst of the the devastation of London to be with the people. And Elizabeth saw all of that, but then her father died young, and uh, and you know that was a that was a major shock to her to lose her father so young so quickly. Of course. Uh, people may not be aware, but there was a film a few years ago uh, with Colin Firth called *The King's Speech*, which looks at um, some of the challenges that uh, uh, that her father, George VI, um, actually faced with his own um, uh, role as a as a spokesman for monarchy. With because with the age of radio, and then of course later television, um, you know, in Victoria's age, it wouldn't really have mattered that much. Uh, how well spoken you were or how well you crafted speeches and so on because there was no radio or TV and certainly no social media. So George VI is thrust into that life, dies young, and then suddenly, as you said, at, at a very young age, um, Elizabeth is is queen. Uh, she's coronated in 1953. And you, you talked about one of her first speeches at the beginning where she commits to a life of, of, of service. Um, and... Uh, one of the things that people remember most is the the annual Christmas address from the Queen, the the Queen's uh, Christmas speech, where in which she often expressed her faith in Christ, her hopes for the country, spoke words of encouragement and comfort to the people, and um, those traditions, which I think will go on, I think it will be the the King's speech uh, this Christmas, um, are uh, are are very important to the British people. And she became, you know, in the, it, with the uh, demunition of the British empire and the creation of the Commonwealth to which she was very, very committed. She became a master diplomat and that would kind of that role of soft power, even to the point in the nineties where she was actually at the Kremlin. Um, I mean, Boris uh, Yeltsin and of course, Mikhail Gorbachev were very keen to have the, 
um, uh, c- contact with the British monarchy, seemed to have the approval of the British monarchy. Um, and actually, she, she went and stayed at the Kremlin. And that, that's tremendous soft power that uh, despite not having s- that some of that um, uh, older constitutional uh, power of a, of, a, of, a, of a king from older times, um, she projected that tremendous uh, soft power. Um, and, and, the, and the wonderful thing for, for Christians is that it was um, a life that was committed to the Lord Jesus Christ, and she was very open about that. And, of course, for our American friends, there was um, uh, a famous meeting and time with, um, with Billy Graham. Uh, uh, so, uh, and these times were, were, were significant and of, and of importance to her. The, of course, last year she lost uh, her husband, Prince Philip, um, more of a controversial figure, um, of course, not being um, king as such, um, he uh, was able to, you know, speak his mind um, and uh, express, you know, some odd and controversial views on a variety of things. Um, but uh, he was, by all accounts, you know, a a supportive, very supportive sp- a spouse, a very supportive husband who, on whom she depended, and. Um, it was it was a very sad thing, wasn't it? Seeing the Queen at Prince Philip's funeral, isolated, sat on her own, having to wear a mask, um, and um, you know, I'm not all that surprised that that she didn't last much beyond um, the life of of her husband, Prince Philip. Very often, when you've been married that many years, that kind of support. Um, uh, I mean, I saw it with my own grandmother. Um, the other one often doesn't last that long afterwards. When, when you reach those kind of ages, I mean, Prince Philip was close to 100, I think, and, and, and Queen Elizabeth was, uh, was, was 96. So uh, there's a lot of, of course, a lot more could be said. We can only scratch the surface and say um, a, a few things, you know, about her life. Um, but I don't see the, um, I don't see the uh, collapse of, 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 of monarchy anytime soon. Right. Thanks, Joe. That's uh, that's an insightful, worthwhile sort of re- recap of uh, Elizabeth's legacy. Joe, you mentioned it in passing earlier, but and we said that we'd get back to it. So maybe here, as we conclude, let's uh, let's revisit uh, the the coronation, the ceremony, and the oath, and the uh, the overtly Christian heritage and and messaging that's that's contained in there. Well, I mean, without going over um, the the entire service, it, it, I would encourage our listeners, you know, because it's available online, you can actually read uh, the content of the service of the coronation oath and look at what was actually happening during the um, during the ritual during the service itself, which we know meant a great deal to the Queen. She took it very, very seriously, um, and um, it of course involved uh, an oath to serve. It involved specifically a recognition of not only the ultimate authority and empire of the Lord Jesus Christ, under which every monarch, including Queen Elizabeth, acknowledged she is um, subject under the kingship of Christ, but also the Bible is handed to her as the royal law uh, to be the rule of of, of princes. And um, one of the things we we find in um, in Scripture, Deuteronomy seventeen is the requirement that the king reads the law. That's right. Um, Not only that he reads the law, but that he picks up a pen and makes for himself a copy of the law. 
Right. I think he's, the king has homework. <laughs> That's a good point. Um, actually having to, um, I mean, of course, writing it out in that way, writing out your own copy is a way of getting it into your mind. Um, and, uh, you know, there were instances in, in of course, uh, the history of Israel where the, the law had gone missing. I mean, the, the, the great King Josiah didn't have um, a copy of the law for himself to read until into his 20s. So, you know, Israel was neglecting this duty to not just obey God's law, but to make a copy of it. Um, and the coronation oath uh, and the coronation service that you, you saw in 1953, uh, not personally, of course, we, you, neither you nor I were alive then, but that you can watch, um, really it was, uh, is in continuity with the coronations of the kings of Israel. That, that's really where the essence of its substance comes from. Um, and there, there is a promise to obey God, to serve God, in, of course, in, in, in Britain, to obey the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, it's distinctly Christian. There's no ambiguity. It's not sort of the vague idea of a God or some broad theistic conception. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible is handed as the royal law for the government of all um, princes. And then the scepters um, are handed to her. And the orb um, of the world with the cross on it, representing the empire of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, um, you know, there's more to say about the coronation oath, but, you know, given time, given our time, you know, I, I, I talk about it in a bit in my book, Mission of God, and it's well worth Christians just reading it to see what, uh, what the queen promised and how that connects with the, the, the coronation of, the, of, the, of uh, kings in scripture. And in particular, this commitment to being um, uh, under God and under his law. And of course, we see it's, you know, 1 Samuel chapter 8 and uh, Deuteronomy 17 might at first seem to be in conflict because in 1 Samuel 8, the, the people come to Samuel and they demand a king. And uh, Samuel is hurt. He's upset by this. Interestingly enough, one of the reasons that they give um, for asking for requesting a king is that Samuel's sons, and of course, Samuel wasn't just a priest, he was a judge in Israel. They actually say that um, you are old and your sons do not follow your example. Therefore, appoint a king to judge us. This, um, and um, the uh, part of the issue there we can we can point out immediately is, look, if, 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 if the church, if the priesthood is not faithful, um, then the people will make all kinds of demands. And one of the issues for Samuel is that despite his faithfulness, um, there was a failure in the family. And that created something of a constitutional crisis for Israel because the people were, were not satisfied with Samuel's sons who did not follow the example of Samuel. Um, but I think what goes wrong, if you look at the, the specific nature of the demand in, in 1 Samuel 8, is they say, appoint a king to judge us the same as all the other nations have. Um, it wasn't that they wanted a, a king who was going to serve God. It was going to be un because, as you've pointed out in our discussion previously, um, the king in um, the, in Deuteronomy 17, God permits the appointment of a king. Um, uh, there's nothing said against it in Deuteronomy 17, but there are conditions laid upon that king that he be under the law and that this king not um, build up for himself uh, prerogatives and a kind of authority that is illegitimate. And 
perhaps you can share a couple of those thoughts with us in, in just a second, Ryan, that, that are stipulated there. But so Samuel, interestingly enough, in First Samuel 8, God says, look, let them have their king. They're not rejecting you, Samuel, in this demand for a king like the other nations who will lead us into war and so on. That, that was their demand. It, it was this that they wanted a king, not who would be like unto um, the king of kings, but who would be like the other nations, they say it twice, who will go before us and fight our battles. That's what they wanted. They didn't want to fight their own battles. They wanted a king to fight their battles for them, and they wanted a king like the other nations. So God says, look, they're rejecting not you, Samuel. They're rejecting me, um, and their rejection of you is their rejection of me. So listen, let them have their king, but warn them about what this king might do. It's interesting um, that some of these powers are described for us that, that, that the king is not to accrue for himself in Deuteronomy 17. Can you can you just mm-hmm. say something about that? Yeah, of course. It, those uh, those two passages have have many parallels, and I'll just uh, I'll make them more explicit here. In Deuteronomy 17, starting in verse 16, some of the stipulations on the reign of the king, the extent of his power says only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses, since the Lord has said you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excess silver or gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life. It shall not just sit in his closet. That he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of his law and his statutes and doing them. That his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel." That's, uh, yeah, Deuteronomy 17, uh, verses 16 through 20. Yeah. Now, I have, uh, you know, I, I, this is no surprise. I have some, I have slight libertarian sympathies, but I, I like this depiction of a king that, uh, mm-hmm. that scripture gives us. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, we can go back, of course, and this is a, the, the moment to, to um, you know, as you've linked there, the, the what the king, what's going to be required of the king are the very things that God says that this type of king that you're demanding, this is what this, this king like the other nations is going to do. That wasn't the kind of king that um, God uh, wanted. And you, you look ultimately at the servant king, the Lord Jesus Christ, um, we sing about him as the servant king. Um, he's Lord of Lords and he's King of Kings. He's the ruler of the kings of the earth. And the first king, of course, is King Adam in the garden of God. He's a kingly priest to, to serve God, to be a vicegerent under God or a vice regent, certainly a vicegerent. That is somebody who rules under. Um, and, uh, there he was to 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 minister and to serve turn creation into a god glorifying culture and that was the kingly role and we see that israel itself is called to be a kingdom of priests um so a kingly priesthood and uh, of course we see glimpses of what kings are meant to be in king david uh glimpses in king solomon glimpses in king josiah um and glimpses in hezekiah 
but only glimpses in all of them um, because of their failures and fallibilities. Um, but then in the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, the greater Davidic son, the greater son of David, the lion of the tribe of Judah, um, we see the embodiment of the perfect kingly priest uh, who embodies authority um, in an office under God, ruling and ministering under God, um, serving his father, uh, doing the will of his father, um, and yet he is the king of kings and he is the Lord of lords. And this is the king that washed the disciples' feet, uh, went to the cross, and is seated, is raised to life, ascends to heaven, is now seated at the right hand of all power and all authority, and he's ruling the nations. Um, and yet that rule is nonetheless the rule of uh, both the rod and the staff. Uh, it's the this occupying of an office of both the scepter of total authority and the shepherd staff, the shepherd king who is nurturing, leading, guiding his people, leading them like a shepherd. Um, and so there you have actually the perfection of kingship in the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and in Christ, we are also a kingly priesthood. We have a kingly and royal role. So the ideal, of course, within a state for a nation um, that has a constitutional monarchy is servant kingship, um, servant rule, uh, and um, you know we we and we see it modelled ultimately in the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and I think it was Queen Victoria who 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 said at one point that she she would 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 long to be around at the time of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ so that she could place her crown at his feet. And that, of course, is fundamentally what the coronation oath was about. Um, and the, the coronation is in a certain sense, you know, you could take it back to Adam and you can fast forward it through to the kings in Israel and then and, and then a sort with the certainly Christian kings. Um, of course, in British history, we go back to Alfred the Great, the only king to be called great. Well, there is some discussion about whether Elizabeth should be called Elizabeth the Great, um, but he is he's Alfred the Great. And here this this Alfred the Great take seriously this requirement to write the book of the law. And he begins the first codification of English law with the Ten Commandments and um, with uh, passages from Paul and the book of Acts. Uh, here is the royal law. And that is the richness of the tradition we have. And, and it's not just actually the British tradition, because, of course, it comes to us in Canada um, as uh, where, where the, 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 the Elizabeth was the head of state and now King Charles III is, is the head of state. Um, and of course, in the common law tradition and in the Western legal tradition, it comes to us in the United States as well, which was settled by uh, the British, by the English. Um, um, and, uh, you know, the, these were the they were insisting themselves on the rights of free born Englishmen in their resistance to King George. Uh, and the whole idea of writing the book of the law there and Moses is there inscribed on the walls of the Supreme Court building. So going all the way back to Alfred the Great, the English speaking world. Uh, this Anglo-American tradition is rooted in this idea of kingship, this idea of service, of writing the book of the law, of this being the foundation of our constitution and of recognizing the God's authority and in particular the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ who is prophet, priest, and king. And if you want, if you were in any doubt about that, we've got Psalm 110 where God the Lord says to, to my Lord, so 
uh, there you have um, an indication immediately there of Christ being the Lord. Uh, this is the this is a Davidic psalm. This is the declaration of the Lord to my Lord. So David is saying, "My Lord is the Lord." It's about the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, um, and the and God Himself, the Father, is saying to the Son, "Sit at my right hand." So the Lord, the Lord God, is saying to David's Lord, Christ the King, the Messiah. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So David is acknowledging the lordship actually of the son and, and of course of the father. Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. Rule over your surrounding enemies. And interestingly enough, forever you are a priest like Melchizedek. So this is not speaking about King David. Here we have a king and a priest. And mark this. Um, in the history of, um, of of monarchy in the West, in Christian kingdoms, and especially in the United Kingdom, the the monarch cannot function as a priest. The monarch is not a priest. The monarch is not the Archbishop of Canterbury. The, the the monarch, unlike Rome at the Vatican, where you have a complete conflation of uh, the head of state and the head of the church. Uh, essentially, the Pope is king of the Vatican City and high priest of Vatican City. Um, only the Lord Jesus Christ can be both um, king, absolute Lord and king, and priest. And it's in him that we have both this kingly and priestly office. So Christ is of the order of Melchizedek, which precedes the Aaronic priesthood uh, and is greater than the Aaronic priesthood. And the Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his anger. So Psalm 110 is about Christ's kingship over all the kings of the earth. And of course, Psalm 2, even more famously, uh, is about the total rule of the messianic king um, and his ruling over the nations, even those that are trying to throw off his yoke, his bond, um, to throw off, to cast off the anointed one. And God says, I have consecrated my king on Zion, my holy mountain. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. And then there's a warning to kings, in, in other words, to lesser kings, to rulers. So God uh, immediately, in, in, in a certain sense there, you know, you read Proverbs 8 at the beginning, by me kings reign. Uh, God says to kings, so he endorses kingship, be wise. Right, receive instruction, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with reverential awe. Rejoice with trembling. Pay homage to the Son, or He will be angry, and you will perish in your rebellion. So, in in wrapping up, I might say this: that, however, a limited uh, Queen Elizabeth's power may have been, she paid homage to the Son. Read the coronation oath. Watch the coronation service. She paid homage to the Son. She made an oath to the Son. She received instruction. She valued the gospel. She valued the word of God. She had reverential awe, and she gave her her, her life in as one of duty and service um, under God. And I believe, Ryan, that that's why God allowed her to, to, to reign for 70 years, uh, to reach her platinum jubilee um, as the servant queen who's, who's, who served Christ. Imperfectly, we could talk about um, limitations and weaknesses, and should there should she have created a constitutional crisis? That's that's an open question. But um, in the in the place in the job description that she had, 
um, within the limitations that of that job description, um, she served Christ the King, and 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 a rainbow on the day of her death, I believe it was, appeared over over Windsor Castle and over Buckingham Palace, and of course the rainbow in Scripture symbolizes God's faithfulness to His promises, that God keeps His promises, and. Um, uh, the, uh, Queen Elizabeth II reached 96 years of age, the longest reigning monarch in Europe, the servant queen, and God reminds us on the day of her death, he keeps his promises. You make an oath to me, and you keep that oath to serve me, uh, I keep my promises. And she was blessed with long life and a long reign, and by the grace of God, um, instead of seeing a violent breakup and and um, collapse of the British Empire, she oversaw um, the empire become a family of nations uh, with a peaceful um, and willing, actually, um, steady uh, breakup, a steady conclusion of British um, imperial rule. And there are, there are many other things that could be said about her legacy, but um, God does keep his promises. And if King Charles III uh, makes the coronation oath um, in, a, in the same or very similar vein to Queen Elizabeth II um, and promises to serve God under the Lord Jesus Christ, takes that book of the law in his hand, God takes oaths seriously. And um, he will be accountable to the Lord to receive instruction and serve him with reverential awe. And actually, in his first address to the nation, I don't know whether you watched it, and to the uh, the places where he is head of state, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, um, that, um, and uh, and actually, I don't have the full list in front of me, um, but he... he Made he talked about in that opening speech the importance not only of his mother's legacy, but of his own faith commitment. And there's been a lot of talk in the past about you know Prince Charles, defender of the faiths, and all of that. Well, while you're Prince of Wales and you don't have the burden of the crown and the burden of the constitution, you can sort of shoot off in all kinds of directions. And uh, I wonder whether, and I'm praying that the that that the, this task that he now has, and especially when coronation comes around next year, that the weight of his mother's legacy and his own profession that he said of the importance of his faith, of the Church of England to him, um, that the weight of all of that will descend upon him in a way that it never has before, and that God will quicken his heart, and that he would. Um, our prayer is that he would, and of course that's yet to be seen, but our prayer would be that he would follow in the legacy of Elizabeth and that he would um, defend the faith and uphold the faith and serve God. Um, and um, we, can, we can only put our faith ultimately, of course, in the, the, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the Lord Jesus Christ, the ruler of the kings of the earth. We don't place our hope in earthly monarchs or their um, promises or their confession. We place it in the Lord Jesus Christ. But we can celebrate and rejoice when earthly kings and rulers acknowledge the ultimate kingship and rule of Christ and his word and the, and the power of his gospel. Well, that's, uh, you summarized it there better than I'm, I was, I would have. So I'm going to let that stand as our conclusion for this episode. Do, do, does each monarch 
take the same oath? Like, will Charles take take the same oath nearly word for word as Elizabeth did, or will he will he have an opportunity to to write to something of his own? Uh, the 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 coronation service is fixed. Um, so right now, I think everybody's anticipating that it will be a very similar, if not identical, um, service uh, which um, Queen Elizabeth went through. Of course, at this stage, um, some of the, the some of those will be state secrets, <laughs> so um, we don't know exactly what. But the fact that um, exactly what it will be, but the fact that um, King Charles. Uh, talked about in his first speech, well, uh, the importance of his faith, the importance of the church, uh, the importance of his mother's legacy, his desire to continue in that legacy, uh, his oath to uphold the settlement of the Church of Scotland. All of that seems to be a, a clear indication that the that the establishment, that the constitutional arrangements uh, in England and the oath itself are going to remain unchanged. Obviously, I, I, I can't, um, I can't guarantee that on this podcast. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but that there is every indication that it will be either the same or very, very similar, and that we will see the same, um, the same arrangement. Okay, you know, that was uh, that was just kind of for my my curiosity. Joe, thanks very much. This has been an enlightening and interesting conversation. For all Good of you listening, you, I hope uh, and, and pray that it's been a blessing to you. Uh, we'll be praying for His Majesty as he uh, as he prepares to to take that uh, that oath and come into his duties and responsibilities. And from all of us here at the Ezra Institute, uh, we remind you as ever that from Him and through Him and to Him, that's Jesus Christ, the ruler of the kings of the earth, are all things. To God be the glory, and we will look forward to being with you next week. 